1: Manchester's indie rock and roll station. Excess Manchester. The Excess Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester.
0: Here are, I'm Jim and this is The Excess Long Player. Welcome if this is your first time. Here you will find conversations about classic albums with the people who helped make those albums. And tonight it is a band who were, just before the release of this 2007 album, dubbed Britain's Next Big Band, which is something we get into a fair bit on today's podcast. I'm talking to Phil Etheridge from The Twang about their debut album, Love it when I feel like this. Today's conversation isn't just about the music. There's a fair bit on the hype around the band. There's a fair bit on the portrayal of the twang in the press. But there is plenty on this classic album as well. Enjoy this conversation. I did. It's with Phil from The Twang. Another classic album boxed off on the excess Long Player. Oh, before we get into it as well, if you're a little bit sensitive to spicy language, then proceed with caution. Phil likes an F-bomb. Right, here we go. How you doing, Phil? I'm very well, I'm very well. Looking forward to talking about this one. We're going to start, as, as would seem sensible at the beginning, in the early days of the band. Now, yeah. before all the members were kind of present and in place, you played guitar early days before you got the new members and then you kind of gave up the guitar, you became kind of the front man, just did the vocals and whatnot.
1: Yeah, yeah I played bass. Oh, was it bass yeah.
0: you played? Okay.
1: Bass on stage, yeah. Okay. Like obviously, I played guitar when I was trying to write at home. But, yeah. Um, yeah. When we was playing live, I I played bass. Yeah.
0: So when you Badly. can... When, <laughs> well, that, that probably answers my question in that case. Because what I was going to say, when you came to kind of actually record this album, how did it feel in terms of kind of letting the others get on with the musical parts and you just concentrated on the writing and the recording and the vocals? Was there any emotion connected to playing bass? You're like, oh, let me just do this bit.
1: Well, we have done quite a bit of recording where I was playing bass. Right. Um, and the only reason I kind of stopped is that there were certain tracks... Like Cloudy Room, for instance, that I just couldn't get my head around playing and singing at the same time. So I used to, like, just pass the bass to John. We'd end up just doing it with no guitar or whatever. Certain songs were suffering for it, so uh, that was the only reason we kind of swapped over. John was just a lot better as well, basically. But no, I didn't feel any kind of... Um, no, I was quite happy. I found it quite stressful recording my beelines in a studio. Because um, mm. if I'm being completely honest, it just wasn't that technically good. I just used to pound it, you know... and have fun but i missed it on stage for a little bit you can kind of hide behind a guitar yeah. you know or a bass or whatever And i kind of i used to like smashing it off the roof and kind of just like yeah I, I missed it on stage for a little bit i didn't know what to do myself but um yeah you work that out don't you?
0: i don't think that's an uncommon thing because you quite often see front men in bands holding guitars and doing very little with them because it's a prop isn't it it's kind of like a it's <laughs> something to do true, it makes like... you feel less awkward
1: yeah, I always think that. I did, I did play guitar when we recorded Jewelry Court 2009, the following tour to promote that record. I did play guitar on stage for that tour, but it just didn't feel... Maybe I'd done a couple of tours with it, actually, but um, I did feel like I was just standing there playing, <laughs> splanging mm. the odd chord, do you know what I mean? It didn't feel completely authentic. I
0: mean, but, going um, back to this time, going back to 2007, and the Twang were obviously a Midlands-Birmingham band. At that period, and probably now, in fact, still, it's the same, you don't often hear strong Midlands or strong Birmingham accents within music. It's not as represented as, say, Edinburgh or Glasgow or or Manchester even, or even London. Did you feel like at that period you were doing something different, that you were singing with this authenticity that maybe other bands didn't have that were from your area?
1: I don't think I ever thought about the accent thing. You do what you do. Mm. I was conscious that... A lot of bands that you see at that level when you're, you know, when you're unsigned and, and, and trying to do your thing, you, you know, we were conscious that a lot of bands seemed to copy whatever was doing well at the time, you know. So they'd all sound like editors or, or some American bands that kind of have that like strokesy vibe to their vocal or whatever. And I thought I was always conscious that, you know, to just do our own thing we did always feel that we were doing something different as well because again when we played with people we were different we weren't like your typical band lads yeah. you know what i mean i'm got i've got that word lads in early doors because that's what everyone you know you know that whole lad rock thing was mm. um, an annoying tag you know but we did feel different we we weren't as loud and raucous as our personalities the music was quite calm early Early doors. It sounded different to how people would have expected we sounded, I reckon. Mm. It wasn't until Stu joined our guitarist Stu that you know we got a little bit more oomph to the sound. You know what I mean?
0: You've mentioned a lot of things there, Phil, that I want to go back to in, in a little bit. So and we're gonna talk more about the music itself on the album very shortly, but just want to pick up on what you said about this kind of lad rock vibe. Because when the album came out, and probably in the run-up to the album and when the singles were kind of coming out. The band were often portrayed as, and I'm not entirely sure what the right word is here, laddish is one, roguish, scallies maybe would be another. And there were loads of stories that kind of seemed to back up that attitude. There was the incident, the famous incident with the samurai sword, of course. (laughs) Was that a true portrayal? Were you kind of playing parts there? Or was that how you see yourselves? Because when I listened to this album back, there's heart, there's intelligence, there's romance, and that wasn't always what came across when we read about you in the music press.
1: Well, I think the first person to get involved with the band was our press officer at the time. We, we had the same managers as editors. And he, the first story he run was the samurai sword. And I was like, fucking hell, why is he, <laughs> you know, I was like, why is he going and done that? Because then every interview I was being asked about that. And before you know it, it yeah. had gone from what actually happened to like that we carry him in clubs and stuff. And it was just, it was just bizarre.
0: Obviously, that story is an exception. I remember reading an NME review where they claimed you tried to spike them whilst they were doing the interview. <laughs> well, I think, was, was that kind of a fair portrayal of the band at the
1: time? Well, I mean, yeah, we were no angels, you know, and it wasn't <laughs> fake. But what was not true is that, you know, the hooligan thing mm. wasn't true because, you know, we weren't violent we were just roguish you know we just yeah. we just had a little play up we were just different i think as well and the, the press were they were crying out for that kind of you know the next oasis the next mondays and mm. i think they still are i think if you got um but then you know grind grind does that now doesn't it so you know I, I guess they're always looking for that authenticity that real band you know going
0: back to what i said a second ago about the kind of the album and it's part intelligence romance i think quite often when i've done this series of shows where we go back to classic albums i've found something in the album that i didn't notice the first time around and on this album i think it was the the kind of lyrical skill almost an urban poetry almost sean ryder-esque in terms of the way the songs are constructed as the man behind those words phil when was it you realised? Or did you ever
1: realise that you had this power with words? So all the songs have always been written with myself and John Watkin. Mm. So I always, like, I had like a, I had like this, I've still got it where like, I kind of, he's one of my favourite ever songwriters, John is really. And uh, every time he wrote something, I was like, oh man, I've got to try and, you know, I've got to try and step up and write something as good, you know. So if he wrote an ice cream Sunday, I'd try and write, you know, a, come down with a wide awake or whatever. And it was like, there was this constant, like, you know, he'd bring down a song, I'd bring down a song. And it kind of, we kind of pushed each other on. I don't think I ever thought I was talented in any way. I I felt lucky that I'd, I'd met someone like John, that I had this relationship with a friend who wanted to do the same as me. And, you know, we had this like dream and ambition to go and do something. And rather than spend our time in the pub, chatting bollocks it was you know he wanted to go down the studio with me and you know and just write and that's where we spent you know three four nights a week and just you know trying to get the dream together you know and it was it was amazing times man they're the best times i think being in a band you know when you when things are coming together when those songs click Mm. for the first time and that I can picture being stood there, you know, the airs stood up on the back of my neck and, you know, thinking that this is it, man. And that whole, like, dream of, oh, when we're signed, when we, it's going to, you know, and it, and, it, and it did happen for us, and it was like, yeah, man. When it when it did happen,
0: when you did get the record deal and it all started to move, there was a lot of buzz around the band. Going back to the yeah. enemy again, they described you as Britain's next best new band. They said yeah. it was like the Streets remixing the Stone Roses.
1: What does that kind yeah. of
0: accolade do to a band? Having that badge put you on—does it feed the ego or does it just add extra I, pressure?
1: I've talked about this so much in the past, but I mean, I, at the time, honestly, I didn't realise it was happening really, mm. or I kind of expected it a little bit. We did expect to get signed, and we did think every—you know—every time we played a show, we thought we were there and thereabouts. We never played with anyone that we thought was better than us or doing any—you know—or we did feel that we had our own little thing and our own little click. And it wasn't until like we played with bands like the Coral or James that we was like, you know, this is where we're meant to be at, you know? Yeah. And that sounds probably really arrogant, but that's how it was. And I was conscious of that as well, because it's not possible to be the best band in Britain, mm. because if you're not into that kind of music, then we're the worst band in Britain. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and it's like, and looking back, obviously it damaged us. Cause people want to dislike you if, no one likes being told, this is, this is the band, this is the band you've got to like. It obviously is quite damaging, but at the time, you know, we weren't bothered because it, it was meaning the, uh, the advance for the deal was just going up and up. It was happy days, really, you know. <laughs> the more they talked, the, more, the, the bigger the paycheck got. So it was like, it was pretty cool times, to be honest.
0: I think I've heard you say before that because of the hype around the band, and the album did phenomenally well, it was a top 10 album, you've got a gold disc from it and all that kind of stuff. But I think you've said before that the record label, because of the hype, were a little bit disappointed with how the album performed at the time?
1: I think it was a strange, I think it was I would, a number three album. I'd have If you'd have told me that a few years before, that that was going to happen to me, I'd have snapped your hand mm. off. Yeah, it would have been, it would have been nice to get a number one. But I think, you know, the press fell off as a bit. Going back to that laddie thing, we didn't fuck up like they wanted us to. I didn't become a smackhead. I didn't end up in jail. <laughs> I didn't start dating a supermodel I didn't do the things that they'd have a supermodel what a wanky thing that is to say but you know I didn't start dating a model in London I didn't move to London I didn't do a lot of the things that I think you know I didn't live up to it and I did kind yeah. of back away from it a bit because you know because of the way we were being portrayed I did back away a little bit you know I, I looked back at it and it did kind of freak me out and I did I did take a step back
0: was that conscious were you going I'm not going to be the man you want me to be look tabloid press I'm yeah, not gonna to... I'm not going to because
1: I'm I'm not like that. I mean, compared to most of those people writing it, then I definitely am. And most of my friends, you know, are crackers. But I spent my time in the studio writing songs about my missus and stuff. It was like, (laughs) I wasn't like that mad. Do you know what I mean? I used to perch on the end of my bed playing an acoustic guitar. I wasn't like some crazy fucker running around fighting people, you know. A a lot of the bands at the time, man, I hate, you know, I was like, and, and, you know, I I never used to say stuff about it other bands but I was like I just I hated it I felt it was so fake you know you had people walking out on stage in a little Stone Island jacket giving it the big and and you know that that's not what they're about you know I just backed away from it really I wasn't into it
0: I'm not going to ask you to name any names, but uh, instead we will talk about the album, some specific tracks off the album, if that's okay. And I'm going to ask you to pick a couple of highlights in a moment, whether they're your favourite tracks or stuff that brings back memories. It's completely up to you, but I just want to flag a couple up first, if that's okay. First, either way, I think we need to talk about highest charting single off the album. All over the radio, I seem to remember, back in the late noughties. What's your relationship like with that song now? Do you love it for the doors it opened or... Do you hate it because it's yeah, the yeah, song that gets so much attention?
1: Very much so. I mean, that's the, you know, I've said this a lot as well, but and without saying in all X Factor, that is the song that, that changed everything for us, you know, that changed mm. our fortunes. That was what got management involved. That was what got press officer involved. That was what got enemy involved. It was the song that it just opened every door, you know. We had so much interest in the band, and they were all basically just interested in that song. That's the song that, like, it just changed everything, you know. And still, you know, I think it means a lot to people. We get messages, you know, on a daily about that track. When it does get played on the radio, you know, it's an emotive tune, you know. I remember, like, it was one of them that it took, like, they always say, it did take me five minutes to write and six months to finish. There's bits of that album. There's, you know, there's always regrets. I try not to have, like, I try and be positive about it because, like, to a lot of people, that record marks a time in their life and is important to them but to me obviously you know that time i look back and you'd always do things differently but hindsight's a wonderful thing isn't it
0: the other track i want to talk about is track number five off the album push the ghosts which when i was looking at this i noticed it had a writing credit for ray davies Firstly, is it the Ray Davies, as in Ray Davies from the Kings? Because I've never heard this before and I can't find anything about it online. And it just piqued my interest I've, I've, and I thought I've got to find out more.
1: I've no idea. It's for that salt and pepper beeline, isn't it? That we had to, uh, uh, you know, push it, salt and pepper. Yeah. We, we nicked the beeline, didn't we? Uh, okay. For the middle eight. And they, they got like 50% of the track or whatever. So I'm guessing it's... Not the Ray Davis Yoran event.
0: No, <laughs> I don't think I don't think the kinks had anything to do with salt and pepper pusher, <laughs> to my knowledge, but, um, anyway.
1: Unless they stole that beeline off him. I don't know. Who knows?
0: I'm gonna go and do uh, some further research and dig into that one. I'll find out. I'll report back.
1: Do that. I do know that we had to give, I think we might have even had to give, we definitely give 50% of that track away to them for that.
0: Pick me a couple of tracks that you love, Phil, or that bring back memories, or like you mentioned earlier, that you remember the hairs standing up in the back of your neck when you kind of wrote them or recorded them. Which specific tracks are they?
1: I mean, Two Lovers was, Two Lovers is another big one for us, you know. And that was, again, that was, I, I, I just, I wrote that in my bedroom, perched on it. Saunders was living with me at the time, our old singer. And uh, I took it into, I, I went into his room and played it in this verse and he just like sung the chorus like there and then like, you know, like those magic moments where you just, you just spat the whole thing out in like Mm. literally there and then. And we were like, this is going to be great. And then that was one of the last tracks to be recorded as well. That was during the album sessions that we wrote that. Uh, Stu's guitar on that. It's got Smith's esque. I love it. I love it. There's a fair bit
0: of Manchester in this album, isn't there? There's kind of, we've already mentioned Sean Ryder, mentioned the Stone Roses, you just mentioned the Smiths there. Was that kind of Manchester almost verging on the baggy scene, a big influence behind this album?
1: Well, yeah, definitely. We all were like heavily into like rave and stuff when we were kids. You know, we were too young to to be going to the, you know, the Fantasies and that. We all had the tapes and that's what we were into. And then, you know, 95, 96, we were all going to the steering wheel in Birmingham. And decadence and you know was was into like house basically so it was always going to go that way once we picked up guitars you know once that brick pop thing happened and like late 90s and everyone was picking up a guitar we were just one of them and once that happened it was always going to go that way for us because of the influence of dance music so and it just so happens that manchester's had some of the greatest ever bands you know you can't get away from even like Bands like Woo Life and Money and bands Mm. that don't get talked about that much. It always seems I'm talking about bands from Manchester, but, um, you know, fair play to them.
0: Pick another track off this album that brings back memories.
1: One of the biggest memories is the fact that we we ended up recording it in Wolverhampton in a blooming industrial estate, when we could have been anywhere in the world, really. And uh, I still look back at that and think, what the fuck were we thinking? You know, We could have been in LA with Saudi or whatever, and we were in Wolverhampton with Gaff, but... Again, that was trying to keep the authenticity of like, you know, he'd got us to that situation. So we we, we stuck with him because I think a lot of bands have like demoed with him and then gone off, you know, you get signed and it's automatic that you go with Jim Abyss or automatic that, you know, you go off and do it to someone else. And we kind of we felt that we owed it to him to to finish it with him. So and it was a, it was a, it was January it when we recorded it. It was freezing cold on an industrial estate in Wolverhampton. It was um so that's my big, that's my biggest memory. But tune wise, I love Read What You So. I really like Read What You So. I, I like it. I like it all. I think things like the neighbour don't wait up. You know, I can take or leave now. But they were other time. They were just observational stories of you know just what was happening in my life.
0: You're clearly really proud of this album as as a whole as a piece of work and rightly so. I'm interested to know because I know the early demos that you sent out and when you first got your management, they were handing out these. CDs with 25 odd songs on them so obviously yeah. those 25 odd songs got whittled down to 11 I'm sure there were some new ones in the mix by the time you came to record it as well when you look back on reflection of the 11 songs that are on there do you kind of go yeah we made the right calls here this is
1: the right oh, no no we had it we had a nightmare I mean that's <laughs> but you know I can say that because I do feel that our b-sides were but we were from that era of you know buying oasis singles where you'd get Four, you'd get yeah, proper B-sides. You'd get three other classic tracks with it. So, you know, when we were putting out, you know, Amos with an A was the B-side to Wide Awake, that should have been on the album, really. You know, Saying Nothing was a B-side to Two Lovers, that should have been on the album. Um, and one of the labels that wanted to sign us, that that they wanted Saying Nothing as the first single. But we prided ourselves on on good B-sides, you know. It doesn't that sounds strange saying that nowadays, because it just doesn't matter anymore, does it? But we really like prided ourselves on it and like we probably wasted a second album second albums worth of material on B sides it's
0: been fascinating talking to you about this album for the excess long play I really appreciate your time what is the status of the twang currently i know you've been releasing albums pretty consistently since 2007 you've been playing your must shows as well your annual christmas gig in birmingham <laughs> is, is there any yeah. plans to kind of jack it in anytime soon
1: no i was in the studio last night writing and I enjoy it and as long as the fans are still turning up, we're still playing you know reasonable sized venues and as long as we can still do that we'll still get on the pirate ship and get out there and get amongst it but um I'm not one of them that's gonna keep dropping down and you'll find me in a pub you know <laughs> playing either way I'm not gonna do that you know I pro- I've promised myself that but at the moment you know we, we, we're still selling out like main academies and stuff so it's like as long as that's happening, there's no reason to knock yeah. it on the head. I think live. I think we're up there with any band, you know. I think if you come to one of our shows, you'll see that it's chaos, man. It's mm. it, and the, the, you know the, there's a, the, there's real moments during the shows, and whilst that's still happening, and you know there's no reason to, to knock it on the head. If I start feeling fake, if, if I'm stood there thinking, oh man, this is, then I'll definitely, I'll definitely knock it on the head. Phil, long
0: may it continue. Hopefully we'll get a new Twang album and the live shows continue well into the yeah, future. Man. you should but come
1: to the Ritz in Manchester in um, December.
0: I'll be there, I'll be there. Probably not down the front, but
1: somewhere close to the bar. All right, tap, man, tap, man. Cheers, Cheers mate. Bye. Take care. <laughs> The Excess Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Excess Manchester.
0: Good that, wasn't it? feel clearly very proud of this album, and rightly so. Brilliant album released in 2007, The Twang. Love it when I feel like this. If you've not had a chance to listen back to the album, if it's been a while since you've gone through it from start to finish, I really recommend you do it. It's got some absolutely stunning songs on it. And lyrically... It is a brilliant album. Go and check it out. And hopefully you enjoyed today's podcast enough to explore more in the series. Loads of podcasts about loads of different classic albums. If you liked today's, if you liked the twang and that period of music, I reckon other podcasts to check out in this series, you'd probably go for the one on Block Party talking about silent alarm maybe the music with adam nutter that's a really good conversation and you should probably check out the wombats as well a guide to love loss and desperation if none of them tickle your fancy well check out all the other shows because there are loads of different albums discussed with a load of brilliant people go and find them on the podcast series and if you like what you hear please leave a review leave us a rating because it helps other people discover this podcast as well have a good one i'll see you soon on the next excess long player
1: the Access Manchester Long Player. An iconic album in full with Jim Salverson. Access Manchester.